you've got a Bible, go to Mark chapter 11. That's where we'll be today. And just to kind of roadmap it for us, you know, we have been starting back in December in the season we call Advent on the church calendar. We started looking at the different stories uh, around the incarnation of Jesus. And then we just carried right on from there as we got to the end of December and then into January. And we started looking at the works of Jesus using the gospel of Mark to do that as a way of just following the work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, in the world. And so we looked at different expressions of that through the works. And now this week, we're turning our attention to Holy Week, well in advance of Holy Week. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend the next several weeks leading up to Easter, Good Friday and Easter, looking at each day of Holy Week. So we're gonna look at Palm Sunday today and a text called the Triumphal Entry. It's one that's pretty familiar to a lot of folks. Even if you're new to the Bible, it might be one that you're aware of. But if not, no problem. We'll catch you up. We're going to look at that today. Then we're going to look at the Monday. Next week, we'll look at the Monday of Holy Week, and then the Tuesday all the way up to the day of the cross, and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So that's the roadmap. Everybody follow that, yeah? All right, fantastic. But like any good news series, we got to start with a vocabulary quiz that you didn't know you were going to get. Pop quiz today. All right, so you didn't know you were coming for a pop quiz, but we're going to give you one. I want to see if you know these words. If you don't know them, you are in at least decent company. I didn't know a single one of these. I failed this test completely. All right, so here is a little vocab quiz. Let's look at our first word. It is the word bumfuzzle. Does anybody know what the word bumfuzzle means? You can just, you know, again, you can shoot a hand up. You don't have to say it. You might shout it out. So bumfuzzle means exactly what you are right now, confused or flustered. All right? Our next word, I just like the sound of it, why I chose it from the list, it's the word guardiloo. That's just a fun word to say. Does anybody know what a guardiloo is? I hear, (laughs) this is a fun one. This is the warning that in ancient Scotland they would give before they threw their slop buckets out their window in case anybody was underneath. So if you hear guardiloo, just duck and run. All right, how about this one? Another fun one. Snickersnee. A snickersnee. I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little context clue. Later today, someone in your house might be in the kitchen and they might be using a snickersnee, and you might say, hey, be careful with that. You might lose a digit because it is a long, dangerous knife. That's what a snickersnee is. All right, just two more. Just because we could do it all day and I don't want to lose you, but this is a fun word. Wittershins. Wittershins. For those of you from New Jersey, it's not a reference to water, which I know you say water. Water ice. Wittershins. If you don't know what Wittershins is, it is something that is moving counterclockwise or in the wrong direction. So you might, they're going all Wittershins if they're headed off in the wrong direction. All right? And then the last one, now I... Fair warning, second service. First service, a lot of people knew this one. Nobody knew the last one. Bumbershoot. Does anybody know Bumbershoot? Hey, all right, fantastic. It is an umbrella, if you didn't hear what our brother and sister just shouted. It's an umbrella. So when it rains, get out the Bumbershoot. I think we should just, can we make a pact that as a church, we're gonna start calling umbrellas Bumbershoots? Can we all do it? And then just be like, get the Bumbershoot out, and and we'll all sound dumb together, but we will be together. So listen, if you're gonna use one of those words, you gotta know what they mean, right? I mean, that's the whole point. If you're gonna use a word, an odd word like these, you know, if, you, if you're gonna say Wittershins, you better know what you're talking about. If you're gonna say Snickersnee, you gotta know what you're talking about. You gotta know how words are defined. As we come to the triumphal entry, 
the thing I want you to understand is what Jesus is gonna do for us today is he's gonna make a really big claim. He's gonna say, I am the Messiah. I'm the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But what he's also gonna do is not just make that really bold claim, he's gonna define the term for us. He's gonna redefine it for the people of his day who had one understanding of it, which kind of gets talked about a lot, their understanding of what the Messiah was, right, who he would be. And he's gonna take that up and he's gonna correct it and redefine it. And in his actions, not with his words here, but in his actions, he's going to show us what it means that he is the Messiah. And in reflecting on that, as we're gonna do throughout the days of Holy Week, as we think about all the days of Holy Week, we're gonna reflect upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ leading up to the cross so that we might understand the heart of God. That's our whole ambition. We would understand the heart of God revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, and in redefining or helping us truly define the word Messiah, we're gonna understand more of the heart of God. So that, that's what we wanna look at today, this bold, big action that Jesus takes. He says, I, I am the Messiah. I'm the rescuer. When we apply the, the title Christ or the Christ to Jesus, that's just the Greek term for anointed one, which is uh, synonymous with this idea of the Messiah. So the Old Testament uh, reference or understanding of the Messiah would have been declared as the Christ. So when we call him Jesus Christ, we are saying he is Jesus, the rescuer, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one of God. Does that that make sense? All right, great. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 11, verses one through 11. Let's read it together. And then I'm gonna focus on three aspects of the story, just try to walk you through it. We're gonna look at the cult that Jesus rides in on, the significance of that. Then we are gonna look at the crowd, the makeup of the crowd, and then we're gonna look at the words of the crowd when they shout Hosanna. So if you grab the sermon notes, that's what you'll see as the outline today. Here is the text, starting in verse one, Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. All right, so that's the story of the triumphal entry and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell it and they have different aspects of it that they emphasize and we're gonna use Mark's telling of the story now to focus on those three aspects of the story, the cult, the crowd, and then the Hosanna, all right? So that's what we're gonna follow through today. So let's talk about that cult first. Now, the thing I want you to note that Mark does, he spends a lot of time on this story. Now, if you've been with us as we've been looking at how Mark tells stories, one of the things we recognize, he's a big fan of action, right? He moves the story along 
quickly. He tends to be very succinct with his details but he because he wants to be sort of a man of action where he's saying, this is what happened, and then immediately, you hear the word immediately a lot in Mark's gospel, immediately this happened, and then immediately that happened because he's conveying, I'm moving the story along. But you notice that he spends, of the 11 verses we just read, the first eight, so well more than half of the text, is is caught up with the interactions around this donkey, around this colt. And as you read it, you might go, this doesn't seem to fit with the way Mark tells stories. It's a little bit unusual that he's spending so much time. I mean, did you notice how much repetition there was? Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to find this colt. You're gonna go into the city and you're gonna find it there. And this is, and they went and they found it. And then when they found it, he said, if anybody says this to you, and guess what, these people, they said this to them. And He spends a lot of time kind of parsing out the details of the story. The reason for that is because he wants you to see that this is all happening very intentionally on the part of Jesus. He's the one initiating the action. It wasn't his disciples that said, hey, you look tired. Let us go get you a donkey to ride on as we head towards Jerusalem. It's nobody else's initiative. It's whose initiative to do this? It's Jesus's initiative. And you might think, okay, well, what is he doing? And what he's doing is he's saying, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah that's found back in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Now, Mark doesn't quote it. Matthew does when he tells the story. Here's what Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So all the scholars of the day, all the religious leaders would have agreed, this is a prophecy of the Messiah and how he'll come. And so when Jesus says, go get me a donkey, bring it back here, and I'm gonna ride on it, what is he doing? He's saying, I'm the king. I'm the king who is coming on this colt into the city or towards the city from down the Mount of Olives and up towards the east side of Jerusalem, he's making a claim. Now, what should stand out to us is as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark, one of the themes we've seen again and again is how Jesus keeps his divinity, his role as the Messiah, he keeps it a secret. He again and again, he does a work and then what does he, what does he say? Do we remember? He says, don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourselves. Don't, and then sometimes they ignore him. <laughs> and they go on like, you won't believe what happened right? But again and again, this theme of secrecy, like, it's not my time. Don't tell anybody. Well, Jesus is bringing that to an end. He says, all right, the time of secrecy is now done. It is time to declare once and for all who I am. And so he comes in on this colt, on this donkey, and he's saying, I'm the king that Zechariah is talking about. I'm the rescuer, and I am here. Now, the reason that's significant is because this is a part, the way Mark tells the story, this is a part, well, I mean, it's significant because he's making a really big claim. Fair enough, yes? But it's also significant because what he's doing in making that claim is he is picking a fight. The way Mark tells this story, he puts it with three different instances back to back where Jesus is essentially intentionally offending or drawing the attention of the leaders of the day to show them the bankruptcy of their system and their understanding to bait them into bringing about harm to him. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's picking a fight so that they will put him on the cross. He is initiating the work of the cross. And we'll see it again next week because did you notice at the end of this story in verse 11, there's that kind of odd, and Jesus went into the temple and he looked around and then he, it, was, it was late, 
so he left. Do you know what happens the next day? He's gonna come back to the temple. He's gonna do a few things. He's gonna turn some tables over and drive some people out of the temple. And do you think that might get a few people's attention, yes? Yeah, in between those stories, there's a story about a fig tree that is really confusing, where Jesus is like, it's not the season for the figs, and yet he, he goes up to it expecting to have figs, and then he says, well, cursed are you, and may no one ever eat from you again, and the fig tree dies, it withers away and dies. And it's, I mean, it's not just about Jesus' miraculous power, all of those things, and actually, I'm stealing from next week, because we're gonna talk about this all next week. But all of those things are an indictment of the leaders of Jerusalem. They're an indictment of the Pharisees, an indictment of the chief priests. So as he's coming in and claiming to be king and gathering a following, of course, that's a scary thing for the leaders that they won. It's blasphemous as far as they're concerned because that's not who he is. And second, it's gonna get him in big trouble with Rome. If someone's riding into the city saying, I am the king who is coming, they know that's gonna create a lot of trouble, right? So Jesus is initiating the work of the cross. So here's the first lesson about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the way he's defining it for us. To be the Messiah for Jesus is not about becoming a conquering king that will overthrow Rome in a nationalistic political way. To be the Messiah is to go to the cross. To be the Messiah is to initiate and pursue and go after the work of the cross. In other words, to be the Messiah is to initiate his own death. Now, that's significant for a lot of reasons, right? But the first thing I want you to see and that is in terms of its significance is, you know, sometimes people will treat the cross as if it was almost an accident of history. Like Jesus was misunderstood as a, as a teacher or it was brought about to him. It was brought upon him by others like Rome or the religious leaders who were the ones initiating this work and it was just a gross injustice against Jesus. And that is true. It's a gross injustice by all human standards to put Jesus on the cross. And yet, above and behind all that, who is initiating the work of the cross? Who has designed it? Who has determined that it would happen? Who is bringing it about? It's God the Father and Jesus the Son, who from eternity past had determined that this is what the work of the Messiah was, to suffer and die to redeem a people for God's glory for himself, to reconcile people and purchase them back from their sin. Listen to what Ephesians chapter one, verse, you don't have to flip there, you can if you want, but I just wanna read these to you. Paul speaks to this idea when he says this in Ephesians one. We kind of sometimes focus on this as a, as a text that's kind of about election and predestination, but I want you to hear the planning of God as it relates to the cross of Jesus here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, did you notice that twice he used that word Christ already in the first verse I read to you? What's he saying? He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Blessed be the anointed Messiah of God. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his, what? Blood. And just stop there, and we could keep going, but what I want you to see 
is that it's not just that this text is saying, yeah, he, he elected you before the foundations of the earth to be in him and to, to belong to him and to adopt you as his son or adopt you as his daughter. He's saying he determined to do that through the blood of the Christ, through the blood of the son in eternity past. This was not an accident and it wasn't foisted upon Jesus by somebody else. He initiates the work, he pursues it, and he brings it on himself because he intends to save us, not just from an oppressive Roman rule, but from the oppression of poison and sin in our hearts and from death and separation from God. He had a much bigger mission in front of him as the Messiah, and so he could not be separated as Messiah from the cross. Messiah and cross go together at all times in the purposes of God. Do you see that? There's this beautiful way that Luke in his gospel tells the story when he says, uh, he, the first nine chapters of Luke are sort of uh, Jesus in Galilee and in the northern regions and he dips down in Jerusalem a little bit and there's some back and forth. But in the end of Luke chapter nine, he divides the gospel in half, not in terms of size, but in terms of the story. Because at the end of Luke chapter nine, it says Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. And what Luke is saying is from this moment forward, everything Jesus will do in my telling of this gospel story, this good news story, is he will be moving towards the cross with great intensity and great focus and great intentionality. He himself is going to the cross. No one is making him go there. That is what Luke is saying in the way he weaves together this beautiful story. And in that simple phrase, Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem towards his own death, towards his own cross. Now listen, that's significant, like I said, for so many reasons, but doesn't it help you understand how great the love of God is for you? It wasn't just that Jesus said, okay, the cross is brought to me and I guess I'll yield to it. That's one thing, but if Jesus is saying the cross is what must transpire to redeem these people and reconcile them to God, then I will go towards it. I will move towards it. Isn't that a richer understanding of the love of God that he initiated the work of the cross and then pursued it diligently and intentionally in love for you and in obedience to the Father? Not just like, okay, I guess I have to do this now. But he pursued it. Man, the love of God in Christ Jesus is astounding. The second thing it means for us is if the cross then is intentionally planned by God and then pursued by Jesus and brought about, then it's the center of all human history. It is the center of the story of all of humanity. And if it's the center of that story, then it's supposed to be the center of my life too. I am to be a cross-shaped man. Everything about me is supposed to be like the cross. Everything about you is supposed to be like the cross. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a cross-shaped person. Would you agree with that? That means all my decisions are to be marked by an understanding of the sacrificial love and the humility of the cross. And anywhere that my life does not look like that, it needs to change. And there's such a pull towards pursuing my own best interest. There's such a pull. Don't you feel it every day? Say, so I just want to look out for me. I just want to do what's best for me. I just, I just want to get a little acclaim for myself, a little success for myself. And again and again and again, the cross cries out and says, define success through me. 
Don't define it the way the world defines it. Define your success as looking like the Son of God on the cross. That's when your life is a success. When you are full of humility, when you are full of sacrificial love, when those things define and shape everything about the way you think and everything about the way you live and all the choices that you make and the way you love and the way you move through your career and the way you raise your children and what you think success looks like for them, that's really the testing ground for so many of us, isn't it? How do we define success for our kids? Is it about perfect grades and getting into the best school and one day getting the best job and, and having all of that by the world's definitions of success or is success for us that they would look like a cross-shaped human being? That they would treasure Jesus and his cross and go wherever he sends them? Is success that my kids live next door to me? In fact, I got three of them. I just wanna get the three houses next to mine and let's all live on this street together. Or is success, you go wherever God sends you. You go and you follow and we will be your biggest cheerleaders. We will shout from the rooftops, follow him, don't turn back. We are to live cross-shaped lives. I was thinking about it, I was recently came back in contact with the story of Eric Little. Does anybody know the story of Eric Little? Some of you will probably know it. Chariots of Fire, if you've seen the movie, which only tells one part of his story and a lot of people miss some other parts of his story, uh, probably the most important parts of the story. So if you remember the story of Eric Little or if you don't know it, I'll, I'll tell it to you. He was widely considered the, in the early 1900s fastest man on the planet. I mean, he was a shoe-in at the Olympics for the 100-meter dash, but because there were heats for that 100-meter dash that you had to run in order to qualify for the final, which he was widely expected to win, some of those heats were on Sunday, and as a follower of Christ, he had determined that he wouldn't run on the Sabbath. He said, no, I, I won't do this on the Lord's day. That's the day that's set apart for meeting with the people of God and reflecting upon the cross of Jesus. And so I, I won't do that. And so because he wouldn't do it, he couldn't run in those Olympic games. And that's, that's what Chariots of Fire is kind of about. There's this whole beautiful scene where he's saying he's actually headed to the mission field. And as a, he's born in Scotland, he's a Scottish guy, and head into the mission field in China, and so there's this great scene with one of his friends where he's saying to her, I am going to the mission field. I've yielded to God. I know that's what he has for me, but first, I'm going to run. And what is he, does anybody remember what he says? I'm gonna run because God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure, which is a great demonstration of understanding your created nature by God. But he didn't run in the 100 meters because he couldn't run in that, so he just went ahead and ran in the 400 meters, which if you run track, those are very different events, and he won the gold medal in that. But what you may not know is that after winning that Olympic glory, imagine what he could have done with his life from that point. Imagine all the people saying, Eric, you are the greatest athlete on the planet. Come and be a part of this. Come and be a part of that. All the options that would have been open and available to him, right? He goes to China, follows the Lord into missionary service to tell people who have not heard about the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection about them and dies on the mission field, sacrificing his life for a woman and her child. Locked away in a concentration camp in China. He lived to be 43 years old. That's a cross-shaped life. That's a life that says this is what success is. If the Messiah is always attached to the cross, then we are to be a cross-shaped people. Let's look at the next element of the story, which is the crowd. And first, I wanna talk about the makeup of the crowd. Now, you notice that they, 
we're gonna get to the hosannas and the things that they're shouting and saying, but the first thing I want you to see here is that Mark draws a little less attention to it than uh, Matthew and Luke, and so I wanna borrow from them for a moment. There's this old preacher's tool that gets said all the time, uh, which I think we think kind of gives this powerful turn uh, emotionally, but it's actually, I don't think, accurate, uh, which is that we often comment in Holy Week, here's this crowd on Palm Sunday, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then we act as if it's the same crowd who at the trial is shouting what? Crucify him. It's probably not true that it's the same crowd. And Matthew and Luke gives a hint of it, because when they're coming down the mountain, they call these people his disciples. They say that it's the people probably who were following him from Galilee on his journey from the northern part of the country down to the southern part of the country. And by the way, he'd raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, so he might have a few fans there. And Luke says they'd seen all the powerful works that he had done, and so they were following him. And they recognize when he gets the cult that he's doing this Zechariah 9-9 thing, and they get real excited. And so they start throwing their cloaks on the road and they start putting their cloaks on the dog. Yeah, sit here, right? And they're, they're really excited. They probably have this picture of Isaiah 52 in their minds, which we're gonna look at in just a moment, where the Isaiah is writing and he has this prophetic word to these people who are living in exile and he says to them, there's this day that's gonna come where this rescuer, this Messiah is going to, is going to come and he's gonna come to Jerusalem, and he's gonna rescue his people, and he's gonna declare the salvation of the Lord, and it's gonna be a glorious day, and there's gonna be this messenger who the watchmen on the wall are gonna see at a distance, and they're gonna see him coming, and they're gonna say, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, which is what Paul's gonna say in Romans chapter 10 about the gospel, those who carry the gospel wherever they go. And the reason they say how beautiful are the feet is because the feet are the least beautiful part of the body. This message is so beautiful that even these dusty, dirty, nasty, scarred up, bruised feet that have been running for miles to bring this message, even they're beautiful on this messenger because the message is so beautiful. And so Isaiah is saying, here he, here he comes, and the messenger comes in, and the watchmen on the wall are so excited, they begin to shout. They begin to say, here he comes, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, his messenger is coming before him, and here he comes. And so that's exactly what these people have in their mind. Here comes the Lord back into Zion, back into Jerusalem to rescue his people. That's what they have in their eyes, in their minds as they're now watching. But here's the thing. If it's not the same crowd who shouts Hosanna and then turns on him on Friday and says, crucify him. It's probably two different crowds. And I think Matthew and Luke make that really pretty, pretty clear. There's still a question. And what's that question? Well, where are these people? If they're not the ones shouting crucify, they're also not at the trial shouting, no, let him go. Save him, release him. So what does that mean? They abandoned Jesus. And Mark is telling the story where there's three levels of abandonment that happen as you advance. Let's see if you can remember what they are. The first abandonment is this one. It's not as obvious, but we're supposed to see their hosannas and know that they're not gonna be there on Friday and go, well, where did they go? They abandoned Jesus. For Jesus to be the Messiah meant to be abandoned, to have to go to the cross alone. Who's gonna abandon him next? Not just this bigger group of disciples, but the 12. Remember Peter? He says, you're all gonna leave me. He says, but, he says, if 
I have to die with you, I won't leave you. Big words. If I have to die with you, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So before the crow, before the cock crows three times, you'll abandon me. You'll deny me three times, right? And so there's that abandonment, and then there's one final abandonment in each of the gospels, Mark included. And what is that abandonment? It's the abandonment of the son by the father on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have put me under the full weight of your wrath towards sin and I have been separated from you, the one with whom I've only known perfect fellowship for all eternity and now I'm abandoned. Do you see how that story builds in that way? You're supposed to see the building of the aloneness, the utter aloneness of Jesus. That's what it means to be the Messiah. It doesn't mean to have a crowd around you shouting, let's go, let's take Jerusalem back, let's overthrow Rome. To be the Messiah was not going to mean to have crowds of adulation. It was going to mean to have to suffer and die alone with no one next to you. When you go through hard things, it's one thing to go through hard things and be surrounded by people who love you, who keep lifting up your arms and saying, you can do this, let's go, I'm here with you. Sometimes that's, that's just enough to get us through. Would you agree? Yeah, I hope you have good friends like that. It's another thing to go through that by yourself with no one around in utter isolation. That's exactly what Jesus is saying it means for him to be the Messiah. Now there's two things to draw from that. The first is he was abandoned so that you will never have to be. You will never be without the presence of the Father. You'll never be separated from the Lord. At your worst, at your absolute worst, think for a moment, do not say out loud, the thing that you're like, that was my worst moment. It just sends shudders down my spine to think about the fact that I did that. At that lowest moment of your life, you were not pushed away by God. You were pulled in. You were drawn near. You were loved as his precious child. Why? Because he doesn't need to abandon you because he abandoned his son for you. He could not be saved so that we were saved. And that's such a rich thing. Think about Romans chapter eight. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Why is that such a sure and true promise? Because Jesus was abandoned. Because he underwent rejection. We don't have to, ever, ever. How, rich is our, how much richer is our understanding of the love of God as we understand that, yes? Now, the second thing to, uh, to draw from that then is to remember that there will be times that to follow this Messiah, to have this kind of cross-shaped life, we will have to go alone. Not alone as if the Father's not with us, but there will be times where it will mean leaving behind father and mother, leaving behind brother and sister, and going where no one goes with us. There will be times where the path of faithfulness will require you to go where no one else will go with you. You will have to go, at least in an earthly sense, alone. You and the Father only. And that is hard. It's part of why we live together in the church, right? It's so that hopefully we have this crowd of witnesses around us, this family, this fellowship, but there will be times where to go will mean you have to do it at a time when no one else is willing or able to go with you, the path of faithfulness. Think about 
I'm gonna give you two sides of a coin here because one is to, is to be careful about that. That is true, I believe, but there's also times where, and you've probably had this too, where you encounter people who believe God is calling them to go somewhere alone and what they're really doing is just rejecting all the godly counsel around them. Who say, no, 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 that's not the path of wisdom. That's not the path of godliness. And it can be tricky sometimes to discern whether this is a call from the Lord and I need to walk in it even though no one's gonna go with me, right? And sometimes, you know, again, the general principle here is listen to wise, godly counsel. And if they are telling you, no, that's not the path of the Lord, that's usually, you wanna listen to that. Yes, agreed? The other side of that coin is that, like I said, there are times you have to go alone to walk in the path of faithfulness. My, one of my very best friends, when he was 16, came to know the Lord. That's when the Lord saved him and drew him. And he heard the good news of the gospel through an aunt and an uncle, and his parents uh, were not and are not of the faith. Uh, and as a result, they thought he had been abducted like into a cult, essentially. And so they, they sought um, to bring him into psychoanalysis and all kinds of different therapeutic measures. And he was just saying, he was just believing in Orthodox Christianity as it had been handed down generation after generation by the saints, right? Eventually what it led to, because he did what, every, what all of us should do, he couldn't help but tell everybody he knew about it. He'd come to know Jesus, and he knew he'd been saved, and he knew he'd been given eternal life, and he just wanted everybody to know. And so as he did, eventually his parents got so upset with how vociferous he was in telling everyone he knew about Jesus, they kicked him out of his house at 16 years old. At 16, he was no longer a part of his family. He had to go figure out how to make ends meet on his own, how to live on his own, how to survive, get through high school, get through college. He was no longer like, welcome at his family's table. For him to walk in the path of faithfulness, to follow his Messiah, meant to be alone. But then he was brought into the family of God, which was really a rich and beautiful thing. Now, I will say, God has done a lot of redeeming work in that story. Uh, it's been really good. If, you, if this occurs to you today, you can pray for my friend's family. They're still not in the faith, but there's been much healing in their relationship with one another, which has been really good. I'm thankful for it. But we continue to pray, Jesus, redeem my friend's parents. All right, last part of the story. Last part of the story, that, that Hosanna. So we've seen the actions of the crowd or the makeup of the crowd. Now let's talk for a minute about their words, all right? So they are quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which were widely understood in that day to be a messianic psalm about this rescuer who was going to come. Now, that Hosanna is a declaration and a request all in one. So what they're saying is, it's a cry from verse 25 of Psalm 118 where the psalmist says, save us, O Lord, save us. And that's what Hosanna means. It means save us. So it's a request, save us. But it's also a declaration. We believe you're the one who can save us. So you wouldn't yell Hosanna or shout that to Jesus unless you believed you're the one who can do it. And again, they're inviting him and asking him to save them from their Roman overlords, right? Please rescue us from this political oppression. And one of the ways we know that is because they quote Psalm 118, verse 25, Hosanna, save us. Then they quote verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, there's that Isaiah 52 idea. Here comes the rescuer. Here he comes into Jerusalem. But then they add one other statement that is not in Psalm 118. Go back to verse nine and 10 and look at those again, because here it is. Here's what they say. Verse 10, 
After saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, what they've done is they, they know that the Messiah is going to be in the line of David, but what have they just added to this text from Psalm 118 about the Savior, about the Messiah? They've added their own words, right? A, a concoction, if you will, of their own words where they say, this Messiah who's coming is coming to usher in what? The kingdom of David, which in his day, he was a king, an earthly political ruler, and they're essentially saying, this is what you're coming to do. You're coming to take Jerusalem back in the same way that David ruled in Jerusalem. You're gonna come rule in Jerusalem, and we're excited about that. And they're declaring that that's exactly what he's come for. But again, what they're missing is that he's come to do a different kind of saving a different kind of, if you'll excuse the, the butchering of the grammar, a different kind of Hosanna-ing that he has come to save, but not from Rome. He's come to save, and not just one nation, Israel. He's come to save people from all nations, from sin and death. Now listen, it is so easy, just to kind of front load this application, then I wanna walk you through um, some really beautiful passages just quickly. It is so easy to get in our heads what, God is, what we want God to do and what we expect him to do, isn't it? And then for him to turn that on its head and go, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing this. And then the question becomes, when he does something we don't expect him to do, how will we react? Will we say, what you want to do is what matters, not what I want you to do? Or will we say, no, that's not the way you're supposed to act? That's not the way you're supposed to operate in my life. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now listen, if the people had had eyes to see, and this is one of the points I wanna make about the importance of understanding scripture. If they'd had eyes to see, they would have seen that this was always the way the Messiah was talked about. And you and I look back on it now, hindsight is twenty twenty. We look back on the cross and we go, how did they not see that this was always part of God's plan for the Messiah. But listen, we miss things all the time. But listen now to the full counsel of the word of God because if they'd had eyes to see, they would have seen it everywhere. Because Genesis chapter three, let's go all the way back to the beginning. The very first promise, almost all scholars agree, the very first promise about this rescuer, about this Messiah, right at the moment that Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord and reject his kingship over them and reject that he's the one that's worthy of worship and say, no, we, we want to be in control of our own lives. What happens is God creates them. They're the pinnacle of his creation. He invites them into fellowship with him and to worship him and to love him and to be connected to him. And then this evil, this epitome of evil, this representation of evil, the serpent is in the garden and he whispers a lie into the ear of the first people. What does he say? God doesn't love you, he doesn't want what's best for you, he cannot be trusted, and he should not be worshiped. That's just a summary of it. And do they believe the Lord or do they believe the evil one? They believe the evil one. And his poison enters their hearts, the poison of that lie enters their hearts and separates them from God. And it's been the same poison and the same poisonous lie that's in the hearts of every human being ever since. God is not good. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He does not love you, and he is not worthy of worship. It's the same lie we're tempted to believe to this day over and over, and what Jesus is saying is, I came to take the poison out. 
I didn't just come to overthrow Rome. I came to take the poison of that lie from you forever and to remake you into a new thing that is brought back into the worship of God. But listen, right at Genesis 3, right when that poison is just entered in, here's the first promise of this rescuer. Verse 15 and 16, he curses the serpent. And then he says, I will put enmity or hatred, strife, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He doesn't just mean human beings in general. He means there is a specific offspring, one who is coming and there will be hatred between you and him. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What do we just hear? We just heard that one is gonna come from the line of this woman who is going to deal a death blow to the head of the serpent. It's not a light little bruise tap on the head. He is going to crush the serpent once and for all, dealing him a death blow. But in that dealing of that death blow, what's gonna happen to the one who does it? This offspring, he will be struck. In striking, he will be struck. Right here at the very beginning, the very first promise of Messiah, what do we see? The saving work that he will come to do will be done through his own death, through himself being sacrificed, he being harmed. Do you see it, yes? All right, so just jump forward then to Isaiah chapter 52. And it's that text that I talked about, right? So let me just show it to you. Verse seven through 10 how beautiful on the, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, that's Jerusalem, your God reigns. And here's the watchman, the voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So they're seeing this victory. They're seeing this amazing thing that's gonna happen. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, if you just read that and you're an Israelite living in Jerusalem, you're saying, this is awesome, yes? But keep reading because look what he says next. All of three verses later, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted, which sounds really good, but we're about to find out how he gets lifted up. Do you remember when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, referring to his cross, then I will draw men to myself. He says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now here comes the pinnacle. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, not his own, but ours. He was crushed for 
our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Do you see the marriage of these two pictures of the Messiah? See, if you just read 52, seven through 10, you go, here he comes. He, the Lord is coming into Jerusalem. He's gonna rescue, he's gonna save. But if you keep reading, you see that from the very beginning, God has always designed that the Messiah would be one who suffers and dies to save a people for himself. Those two things are never parted from one another. In fact, in Psalm 118, which they're quoting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In that same Psalm, Jesus is gonna quote words from it here in just a little bit, in just a couple chapters, and what is he gonna say? He's gonna say the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, it's through my rejection that I will do the Hosanna work. If we have eyes to see, this message of who the Messiah truly is is in front of us all the time, but we, just like these folks again and again, sometimes expect God to act one way, and he acts another. And that's why understanding the full counsel of the word of God is so important, friends. It's so easy to read portions of scripture and say, I like this about the way God operates. I like this about who God is. Maybe because of the group of people we're affiliated with or the family background we have, whatever it is, we like this portion, but it's so important that we let the full word of God speak to us and where we understand, well, what do you say justice is? Okay, that's what it is then. What do you say righteousness is? Okay, then that's what it is. And I will embrace all that your word says. I don't sit in authority over your word. Your word sits in authority over me. You are the one who declares all the things and how they are and what truth is. And so letting that full counsel of the word of God speak to us about all that God declares. So Jesus is revealing for us what it means for him to be the Messiah in this text. And I hope you see that. I hope you understand then how he's shifting and changing perspectives. And as we work our way through Holy Week, we will continue to see the heart of God on display to rescue his people as his son moves towards his cross with great beauty and intentionality in preparation for that beautiful day of the cross and then the resurrection. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your work for us. Thank you that you reveal to us through your word who you are and what you've done through your son. And we pray that you give us eyes to see it. It's not in us to see it naturally. We admit that. But we thank you that you can illuminate it for us and we ask you to do so in humility. May we be a cross-shaped people more and more and more. We admit that we have failed and, and probably failed earlier today and earlier this week, but we trust that you can make us more cross-shaped all the time. And we ask you to do it. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.